So I love walking through secondhand bookstores. If I can find a book that I like and it's dirt cheap, perfect. And so I'm walking through this bookstore one day, looking through all the, you know, the, the names and the titles of the books along the spine. And one of these books sticks out to me. It is one of the most influential books of probably the last century. And it's a book I have here. Many of you are probably familiar with it. If not the book itself, you're familiar with the title of this book. It is written by a minister, Norman Vincent Peale. And the title of the book is The Power of Positive Thinking. As everyone familiar, at least if not with the book, with that phrase, The Power of Positive Thinking. Well, on the cover here, it says 15 million copies sold. So Norman Vincent Peale's doing well for himself. 15 million copies of his book have been sold. And it's really unusual that this book caught on. It was published in the 1950s. So it's coming right uh, in the wake of the Second World War. And here was this book telling people that if you just try hard enough, think hard enough, put in enough effort... You can lift yourself uh, up by your bootstraps. You can accomplish anything that you put your mind to. And maybe it was just the right time for people to hear this kind of message because people responded to it uh, in mass. Of course, uh, millions of copies of the book were sold. It's still in publication today. And many of us still today will hear people say, just trust in the power of positive thinking. It's become part of just the language that we speak today. But it's interesting because the author, uh, Peel, he wasn't the first person to ever come up with this idea. He certainly wasn't the first to tell people, put your mind to it and you can achieve whatever you want in life. He was actually quite late in the game on this. Uh, this idea had been around for nearly 200 years by the time he put pen to paper and wrote down his book. But his book was really the one that caught the mainstream culture into this idea of uh, looking towards the power of positive thinking. And so I want to briefly take you through the history of this because it actually uh, weaves into a very interesting part of Seventh-day Adventist history as well. And then we're going to look a bit more into scripture of what we can learn uh, about this topic. So before uh, Norman Vincent Peale was even born, before he was even thinking of writing this book, we have to go all the way back to the mid-1800s with a man by the name of Phineas Quimby. And Phineas Quimby, he was fascinated by this new pseudoscience, we would call, that was developing in the day. And it was named after a man called Franz Anton Mesmer. And this, uh, this man, Mesmer, created this new type of science that was named after him called Mesmerism. Now, we probably would know mesmerism today by its more common name of hypnotism. But at the time, it was called mesmerism after uh, the inventor, Franz Anton Mesmer. And Quimby was just fascinated. He'd watch these uh, hypnosis uh, rituals and he'd see that the person who was conducting the hypnosis could convince a person's mind to do things they wouldn't otherwise do. So, uh, you know, the typical things is the hypnotist will say, move your arm, move your leg. Whenever I do this, you say this. And the person without, uh, beyond their own volition would do these things simply because their mind believed it to be true. 
for example, we uh, even use the word today mesmerized. We say when someone you know, has that look in their eyes, they're mesmerized, they're transfixed, they're in a trance of some sort. And so Quimby began to think, well, what are the practical applications of this idea of hypnosis or mesmerism? He thought to himself, is the mind truly uh, above all things? Now, what is uh, fascinating is, as I said, this is the mid-1800s when hypnotism and mesmerism is first being introduced into the world, or at least in Western culture. And of course, we know also during the mid-1800s, we have the birth of the Seventh-day Adventist movement. We have 1844 is the Great Disappointment event, and then in the early 1860s, the Adventist church is officially uh, formed as an organization. So this is running right concurrently at the same time. And we shouldn't be surprised that the Adventist church actually gave a response to this growing pseudoscience that was taking the Western world by storm. Here from the very words of Ellen White herself is what she had to say about the topic. She said, men and women are not to study the science of how to take captive the minds of those who associate with them. This is the science that Satan teaches. We are to resist everything of the kind. We are not to tamper with mesmerism or hypnotism. The science of the one who first lost his estate and was cast out of the heavenly courts. So by name, she says, as this new uh, science, she calls, is emerging at the same time the Adventist church is, she gives a warning to the church, don't get involved in this, stay away. Its origin is very sinister. She says it starts with Satan himself. And yet, while the church is giving this warning to the world, the world is becoming more and more enamored with this idea. So coming back to Quimby, Quimby's fascinated by this idea that the mind can somehow convince the body to do things it wouldn't otherwise do. And so he begins thinking, well, how can I apply that into my kind of day-to-day life? And he thinks to himself, what if we could apply this to health? What if the only reason you're sick is because your mind believes that you're sick? And so Quimby decided that if the body just follows what the mind does, then the only thing someone had to do to be cured of a sickness was to think about not being sick. So if you had a headache or a cold, you would just say in your mind, I'm not sick, I don't have a headache, I don't have a cold, and the cold would eventually go away because the mind had power over the body. And so really he was just trying to find a way to, uh, in a sense, apply self-hypnotism. How can you trick your own mind into believing something which is not true? And Quimby really is the founder of what today is called the New Thought Movement, or mind science, this idea that the mind controls everything. But, uh, ah, now, as I said, remember, this is a new health movement. Quimby is saying, I've found a way that we can heal people of sickness and ailment. Just trick your brain into thinking that what is actually true is not so. Or, yeah, lie to your brain, basically, is what he was teaching. And at the same time, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is also saying, we've got a brand new health message that we want to bring to the world. If you are sick, have ailments, we have a way, based in the scripture, that we can treat those ailments. And yet here we have another 
counterfeit or false health message that Ellen White specifically identifies as being from Satan. Here's another quote uh, that she has that talks about really the competition between these two health messages. She says, at the beginning of my work, I had the mind cure science to contend with. So that's the teachings of Quimby, the mind science. I was sent from place to place to declare the falseness of this science into which many were entering. The mind cure was entered upon very innocently to relieve the tension upon the minds of nervous invalids. But oh, how sad were the results. God sent me from place to place to rebuke everything pertaining to this science. So Ellen White even specifically mentions that at the beginning of her ministry, one of her main competitors was this mind science uh, that was arising at the time, the thoughts of Quimby and other people like him. And so for a long time, Adventism has actually had to be in competition with this counterfeit health message that uh, Satan propped up in the mid-1800s. Now, of course, this eventually grew beyond Phineas Quimby. He uh, was just the first of many who took this mind science or mind cure science uh, across the world. And people began to think, well, why limit this to just health? If the mind can make anything reality just by thinking about it, why stop at having good health? And so you see the development of people beginning to say things like, if you just think hard enough about being rich, money will fall into your lap. If you just envision getting that promotion, you'll get it. You don't have to do anything. Just think hard enough about it, that promotion will come to you. If you are looking for a spouse, just envision it in your brain, think about it, think positively about it, it'll come. And so this idea that started off just with hypnosis, developed into healing yourself, developed into why limit that to anything? If the mind can give you anything, why not just ask for anything? And eventually that culminated with the power of positive thinking. If you just think hard enough, be positive enough, think optimistically enough, you will get whatever you want guaranteed. It will come to you. And so we've begun to see really this mainstreaming of mind science uh, or new thought or mesmerism, whatever title we want to give it, this complete mainstreaming of this idea in our culture. You can't walk into a, any bookstore without finding a, a kind of self-help section. And 90% of self-help books today are basically mind science, mind cure science. Uh, I picked out a few very popular ones, and I want you to see if you can pick up the recurring pattern here. So we've got Think and Grow Rich. This was uh, by Napoleon Hill. He was the first one who thought to himself, what if I can think my way to money? Think and grow rich. And um, uh, yeah, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. The second one is The Science of Getting Rich, Attracting Financial Success Through Creative Thought by Wallace D. Waddles, another very popular book. The third one there is How to Stop Overthinking, The Seven-Step Plan to Control and Eliminate Negative Thoughts. Declutter Your Mind and Start Thinking Positively in Five Minutes or Less. There's this recurring emphasis. If you want to get what you want in life, you have to think positive. Just think about it. Think hard enough 
and you can get what you want. Another one that you'll see in every bookstore at the moment, think like a monk. Train your mind for peace and purpose every day. I guarantee if you go into any self-help book section, most of them will have some sort of, uh, in the title or the subtitle, something to do with just think positively enough, think hard enough, try hard enough, anything is possible. And this actually has made its way very easily into the Christian world. Instead of saying think positively enough, we replace it with have enough faith. If you just have enough faith, You'll get this, you'll get that. Nothing will prevent you from having what you want. Just have enough faith. Very simple, deceptive uh, tool. And yet, unfortunately, many people fall for it. Here are some Christian books with very, uh, very similar titles to the secular ones. Uh, we've got Abundance Mindset. Success starts here. Do you have an Abundance Mindset? If you don't have an abundance mindset, you're never going to get anything. You have to have an abundance mindset. Winning the war in your mind. Change your thinking, change your life. There's this implied relation. If you start thinking negatively, everything's going to go wrong. You can't allow yourself to do that. Get out of your head. Stopping the spiral of toxic thoughts. And finally, a mind to succeed. Good success is God's plan for you forever. I think people like Job would struggle to read a book like that. So really, wherever we go, we're facing this counterfeit health message, whether it's in the secular world, whether it's in the Christian world, it's very hard to not be encountered, uh, confronted by this counterfeit health message. Just try hard enough, think hard enough, you can get whatever you want. So briefly, what would we say is a Christian response to the, uh, the, the shortcomings of this idea. I've got five quickly we'll go, go through very briefly. The first being, as we said, it's a counterfeit health message. Ellen White herself specified that hypnotism, mesmerism, the mind cure sciences were devised by Satan to run concurrently and in competition with the Adventist health message that was arising at the time. And we've seen it's had great success. Most people in the world, if they're struggling uh, in any way, will turn to some sort of self-help book or guru. Most people, unfortunately, are not going to open up a Bible. Most will fall into this counterfeit health message. Secondly, it teaches that your mind affects reality. But we know that not to be true. You Uh, Having a a more positive, upbeat, grateful disposition definitely impacts uh, your physical health. It'll impact your motivation. But your mind doesn't literally control the universe, which is what the mind science teaches. Just thinking hard enough about not being sick isn't going to immediately do that. Thinking about being rich isn't going to make you rich. There's nowhere in scripture where we find that. Thirdly, in this system, you actually become God. If you're able to think of anything and make it possible, the only person I can think of who fits that description is God. We see in Genesis, God speaks, something happens. God could probably just think something, it would happen. That's reserved for God. God alone gets to do that. We, as created beings, we don't have the power to make anything happen just by thinking about it. So really, it's a system that puts humans in the place of God. Fourthly, everything turns out to be your fault. Well, why is that? 
Well, if you think positively, positive things happen to you. You get rich, uh, you get the promotion, you get whatever you want. But if you think negatively, bad things happen to you. You begin to attract bad things. And so every single thing that goes wrong in your life is your fault because you weren't thinking positively enough. And so really, it's quite a depressing worldview. It sounds good because you can get all this good stuff, but it's actually a double-edged sword because everything bad that happens to you in your life rests on your shoulders. You mustn't have uh, been thinking optimistically enough. Or in the Christian world, it's you just didn't have enough faith. If you had enough faith, these terrible things wouldn't happen. One author of these books, uh, uh, Rhonda Byrne, author of The Secret, said, the only reason people are overweight is that they're thinking fat thoughts. If they thought thin thoughts, they'd lose weight. It's your fault. Now, it is probably true. Some people are overweight because they've eaten too much. But she doesn't even say it's got anything to do with diet. She just says you were thinking fat thoughts. It sounds silly, but that's the, that's the fundamentals of this belief. If something bad happens, you are thinking the wrong thoughts. And finally, and this is the one I really want to focus on this morning, as particularly as we get into our main scripture, toxic positivity. What do I mean by that? If you are not allowed to think any negative thoughts for fear of something bad happening to you, you can never genuinely express how you feel. You constantly have to put on this facade that everything's okay. Everything's right as rain. I'm happy. I'm, I'm over the moon. Even when we all admittedly experience trials, suffering, persecution, unfairness, injustice, we go through difficult times in life. And as we're going to see in our main Bible reading, it's natural to have these uh, human responses It's natural to feel sadness and grief, frustration, confusion. They're natural things to go through. And yet the mind cure science denies us the ability to do that. It says no matter what happens, you have to keep a big smile on your face. Even if it's fake, put a big smile on your face because otherwise more bad things are going to happen. And so it's this very toxic positivity where you're having to fake being happy, fake Uh, being joyful, put on a smile even when things in life clearly aren't going well. So that's the the first half of our message this morning. I wanted to give you the history of one of the competing uh, health messages that we have in our church today, particularly because, as I said, many people you're going to encounter when they're going through difficult periods aren't going to immediately think of going to the Bible. They'll go to some sort of Uh, book that will teach them put on a fake smile push through it you can do it and if you're equipped with that knowledge of knowing the the negative spiritual history of that and the shortcomings of it you're in a place where you can support people who are going through that and need that help and it also help all of us uh, to be aware of this deception we can we can be aware not to be ensnared by it So for the second part, I want to look at the alternative that Scripture gives us. We've looked at the counterfeit. We know how to identify it. We know the history behind it. We know why it has shortcomings. Now let's look at what God has in store for us. Rather than relying on the power of positive thinking to get through life's challenges, the Bible teaches a very different model 
for how to get through those trials in life. And it's a model I, I want to do a little riff on what Peel did. It's, I'm uh, titling it The Power of Personal Peace. How important is the concept of peace to God? Well, we know he rules from the New Jerusalem, which means the city of peace. Jesus, the Messiah, is called the Prince of Peace. When the angels come and announce Jesus' birth, they say, peace to all men, because Jesus had arrived. One of God's ultimate purposes is to bring peace to this world that's been negatively affected by sin. And here's really the most incredible thing about the peace which God gives. God can give peace to you even in the midst of trials, suffering, persecution, no matter what it is, conflict. God gives peace in the midst of those things. So let's turn to the book of Habakkuk. This is our main passage for this morning. We won't read through the entirety of the book. We're going to read through some highlights about Habakkuk to, to really get an example of how, how God does give personal peace to us in our lives. And how, as I said, God's peace is not restricted to uh, life being absolutely perfect. If, if there's nothing wrong going on in your life and you've got perfect peace, praise God. But God's peace can also be given even when we're in those difficult periods in life. So Habakkuk, he is one of the last prophets before the city of Jerusalem is destroyed. He's looking at his town uh, or his nation, and all he sees is evil and wickedness. And uh, there was a little glimmer of hope for him. King Josiah was a good king. He put people on the right track. But Josiah died prematurely, and that resulted in his sons taking over, and his sons were rubbish rulers. They just led the people back into paganism and idolatry. And so Habakkuk, he's very confused and very frustrated because as he looks around, he can't see any hope. He can't find any peace. Let's read the first four verses here in Habakkuk chapter 1. The burden or the oracle which the prophet Habakkuk saw. Here's what he says. O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. Habakkuk, he's immediately relatable to each one of us reading this because at at some stage in our lives, we've all asked at least one of these questions that Habakkuk has, if not more than one. Habakkuk says wherever he looks, all he sees is violence. Has the world changed that much today where we see violence and war internationally, domestically, locally? When we look around us, we too see violence and we feel frustrated because what can we do about it? What can we do to impact change? We see pain and suffering brought on by natural disasters, disease. Just recently, we saw the island of Tonga suffered a tsunami triggered by a volcanic eruption. The Tongan government has referred to it as an unprecedented disaster. 
And Tonga's relatively uh, close, and yet, what can we do? We feel powerless to do anything to help alleviate people's suffering. Or even recently, the Philippines was hit by typhoons and hurricanes. We see it continuing on today, people suffering. We all experience the pain of loved ones falling ill or sick. Sometimes we're forced to watch that person succumb to that sickness. And like Habakkuk, we we ask God, we cry out to him about the unfairness and injustice of having to watch someone we love be taken away. Like Habakkuk, he says, wherever I go, contention and strife arises. The world we live in, our country, our churches, we all seem to be divided more than ever. Wherever we look, contention and strife arises. And we find it difficult to to come together, to work out solutions, be united during difficult times. Peace seems to be far off when all we see is strife and contention. Habakkuk is even distraught when he says he's forced to look at sin. Why do you make me look at sin and iniquity? Why do I have to watch this? We're experiencing the same. We're told that when Jesus returns, the moral state of the culture that we live in is going to be so depraved, it'll be like that in the time of Noah, a time where God had to wipe out humanity because he couldn't allow the sin and the evil to continue. We've similarly seen a moral decline in our culture. And it's hard to watch. It's hard to to watch people not only commit sin, but be enslaved to it. It's very difficult. And finally, Habakkuk, he says in the final verse, justice does not go forth. The law is powerless. Perverse judgment proceeds. He looks at the world and he's frustrated by the injustice and unfairness in the world around him. The law just seems impotent to actually do anything useful. Now, we're actually quite privileged, I'd say. Overall, we have a pretty fair legal system, but it's not always perfect. No legal system is ever going to be here on earth. Sometimes the law does let criminals get away. What, frust- what frustrates me is sometimes uh, someone just pays their bail. They've done a, a terrible thing. They pay a little bit of money and they're out back in, back in the world. Sometimes uh, perpetrators of crimes aren't caught, aren't found. And we're just left with this, uh, this emptiness where we know justice should be filled. There, there should be some recompense for an evil deed committed. And yet sometimes... It's not possible. So I think it'd be fair to say we've all experienced at least one of these things Habakkuk has. Whether it's looking at the sin in our world, the violence around us, contention and strife, injustice, unfairness, pain, suffering. We've all cried out to God at least once about one of these things that God uh, said, God, why? Why are you allowing this to happen? And then God gives his response to Habakkuk. Now, first of all, we should just point out, God responds to what Habakkuk just asked him. Habakkuk asked God, God, what are you doing about these things? Why am I suffering? And God gives a response. Now, that also implies that God listened to Habakkuk. This is the the most powerful, almighty God of the universe. 
and he listens to Habakkuk, this guy who really is insignificant in the grand scheme of eternity. He listens to what Habakkuk has to say. He listens to the, the questions that he has. And I think that's very significant that God listened to Habakkuk. Now, Habakkuk, he wasn't coming to God uh, in a prideful way or an accusatory way. He was sincere. He was humble in his request. But God listened to him. So how does God respond? Habakkuk says, when I look at my people in Jerusalem, there's so much evil in the world. What are you going to do, God? God tells him what he'll do. Verse 5, he says, look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days, which you would not believe, even if it were told to you. For indeed, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, or that's also another name for the Babylonians, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadths of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind and they gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. Then his mind changes and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. Now, maybe you're a bit like Habakkuk when you first read that and think to yourself, God, uh, how does this solve the problem? So Habakkuk says, God, we've got a problem in Jerusalem. There's too much evil and wickedness over here. What are you going to do? And God's response to Habakkuk is, I'm going to raise up another nation And they're going to put an end to the evil and suffering here. Okay, that sounds good. God's going to put an end to the evil and suffering over in Jerusalem. But then God himself describes this nation that's going to do the judgment, Babylon, as also being equally evil. So, for example, Habakkuk, one of his complaints was there's too much violence. Yet in verse 9, God refers to Babylon as coming for violence. They, they are, they're merciless, they're ruthless. This description, they're idolaters. And Habakkuk's confused. He's thinking, hang on, Babylon is just as bad, if not worse, than Jerusalem. How are they the solution to the problem? Well, Habakkuk can't quite see the, the big picture that God had. Jerusalem, they'd been with God for a long time and the time of mercy and grace for them, it, 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 would, it was close to expiring. And judgment had to be done there. God had to be just and make sure that that evil did not go unpunished. Babylon hadn't quite reached that point yet. God was allowing them a bit more time before they too would end up like Jerusalem. They too would one day have to have justice enacted on them. And so God was temporarily using Babylon as an instrument of his justice, but that didn't mean Babylon would get away scot-free. They too, like Jerusalem, would be held accountable for their actions one day. And so God continues to explain uh, this in chapter 2. Chapter 2 is basically God 
in very explicit detail telling Habakkuk, people who do the wrong thing don't get away with it. And if that includes Babylon, be assured Babylon will suffer the same fate. They're not just going to get away with it. They too will be held accountable for their actions. Uh, In fact, in Habakkuk 2.8, God gives a very explicit warning. He says, because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. Because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city, And all who dwell in it. So again, that word violence is used, and God says, because of that violence and because of the innocent blood shed, Babylon also will suffer a judgment. So God's explicit in assuring Habakkuk, don't worry, Babylon will be held accountable. So, how does this conversation between God and Habakkuk conclude? Habakkuk's given his uh, his questions. God, there's too much evil. God replies, I've got a plan. And Habakkuk then asks again, he goes, this plan, I'm I'm not quite sure about it. Can you explain it to me? Chapter 2, God describes in more detail. Habakkuk, don't worry. Everything's going to be okay. And then chapter 3, the entire chapter is a prayer or a song written by Habakkuk. All about how he's trusting God to take care of things. How he is now at peace after having this conversation with God. And I want to read just the final verses in verses 17 and 19 of Habakkuk 3. This is how the story between God and Habakkuk concludes. He says, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, Though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet, yet I will rejoice in the Lord and I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on my high hills. Habakkuk's at peace. He's at peace with what God is going to do. And importantly, notice, has Habakkuk's situation actually changed at all? The evil and the wickedness that he complained to God about in the first chapter, is it still there? It's still there. The problem is still there. And yet Habakkuk says, no matter what happens, I'm going to be at peace. No matter what befalls me, no matter what trials and suffering come my way, even if there's no food... I'm going to be at peace with God. I will rejoice in him and I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. As we said, God's peace is so powerful. He doesn't even have to sometimes eradicate whatever conflict or trial you're going through. Sometimes he'll leave you there and still be able to give you that peace in the midst of those difficulties and trials. God's peace is so powerful that it can be given before the ultimate solution has even come into fruition. As we read that that first chapter, those first few sentences by Habakkuk, we all relate to one of those experiences, going through some difficulty in life, being forced to watch others that we love go through difficult periods. The world around us is full of strife and violence, 
conflict, injustice, unfairness, sickness, persecution. We all share these common experiences living in a fallen and a sinful world. But God promises to one day put an end to all of this. To make sure no injustice goes unpunished. To make sure that we can live in a perfect world, free from sickness and suffering and death. And until that day, God does not expect us to deny the reality of how we feel when impacted by this fallen world. Unlike the the mind sciences or the new thought or the, the positive thinking people, God does not force you to put on a a fake smile, pretend like everything's okay, when clearly it's not. When Habakkuk brought his problems to God, sincerely and humbly, God didn't just tell him, "Are are you thinking positively enough about this, Habakkuk? I think you should just try to be a bit more optimistic. Come on. God listened to him. And he acknowledged the fact there are problems, Habakkuk. You're right. You've picked up on the fact there are some serious problems with the sinful fallen world. And I'm going to give you a solution. Habakkuk poured out his frustration, his confusion, his grief, his sadness. He gave it to God and God was able to give him personal peace. God doesn't uh, want you to come to him and just pretend like everything's okay. When clearly, as I said, we go through difficulties, trials in life. God's understanding of that, that we live in this broken world, that we ourselves are broken and are in need of God's healing. We aren't denied that opportunity to tell God what we're feeling. We aren't denied the necessity of working through our grief, our confusion, our frustration. God is willing to listen and for us to humbly Give him questions. And then perhaps not immediately, but over time, God can begin the process of bringing about personal peace into your heart and mind. Habakkuk probably went through worse than any of us ever will. And that's not to minimize the the trials that we go through, but instead to maximize and emphasize how powerful is God that he can bring peace to someone like Habakkuk. Someone who probably went through more than we ever will and God could bring peace into his life. So much so that Habakkuk was able to write that beautiful, beautiful prayer at the end of this book. Is God not powerful enough to do the same for you? If he did it for Habakkuk in his circumstances, can't he bring personal peace into your life as well? I believe we we all can experience that personal peace of Habakkuk. And I just want to conclude by giving four very simple reasons for why that is. We know that God knows everything. We can trust him. When Habakkuk went to God, God said, hey, it's all right. I, I, I know what the problem is and I've already got a solution. God's got a plan. He knows what he's doing. Secondly, God wants to listen to you. When we come like Habakkuk before God, God never says, I'm on a lunch break. I'm too tired, not interested. God's there willing to listen. Number three, God is with us in the midst of our trials. God isn't hands off and leaving us to our own devices. Oh, well, you got yourself into this mess, get yourself out. God is there with us 
in the midst of those trials and those difficulties. And finally, this might be the most impactful for us in restoring peace into our hearts. God is going to sort out everything. We know that for a fact. One day God's going to sort out everything in the end. And even if we don't necessarily experience a full, full justice given, even if we don't experience uh, when we lose a loved one, we can't always completely heal from that. No matter what it is, God will bring into full fruition a perfect solution to all the problems we experience here. God's going to sort out everything in the end. And until then, he's with you in the midst of those trials. He's there to listen. He knows you. He knows the problem. He knows the solution. So my hope for you this morning is that whatever you're experiencing in life now or in the past, or whatever experiences come to you in the future, that you will take it to God in prayer and begin to experience that power of God that can bring personal peace into your life.